Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Christmas is canceled? Well, postponed for U.S. senators. Still working on a spending bill tying foreign aid to Ukraine with a crisis at the U.S. southern border. Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen joins us. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, or Libertarian. 70% of the population today says that the border is a national security risk and we have to do something there. The oil war you may not be paying attention to. Venezuela and Guyana in a territory dispute. CNBC contributor Michelle Caruso Cabrera on the politics. Maduro's got a lot of leverage here. And invasion risks. Maduro doesn't have a single ally in the region that wants it to happen. And filling your cup, your plate, and your heart with the chef behind Italy, Lydia Bastianich. It's a process of feeding people, cooking for them. I teach as well. Plus, shakeups at Citigroup, Costco's success, and oil prices looking up. I just like that you said we're back in Contango. At the Copa. It's Friday, December 15th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cure, please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. It's a Friday, and uh, boy, I think we're ready for it this week. Just, just about every week too. Yes, we but are. this is a yes, we it's been are. A long but it's one. been a good week. Look it at the markets. It's a great right. week. It has been six days in a row of gains at this point, not just this week, but all the way back to Friday of last week and Thursday of last week, too. The Dow closed Thursday at another all-time high, now up nearly seven percent in a month. As for the S&P 500, that index is up nearly 5% over the last month and is about 2% from an all-time high. And then you've got the NASDAQ, which is also about 5% uh, higher over the last month, now at a 52-week high. 14761 is where the NASDAQ closed. Also, take a look at what's been happening with Treasury yields. You'll see right now that the 10-year is uh, still below 4%, in fact, pretty handily so. 3.91 is where it stands. The 2-year... Wow, I still can't get used to the two-year, setting all the way down at 4.38%. And then we should check out crude oil prices as well. They're on track for the first weekly gain in two months after a bullish demand forecast from the International Energy Agency. So WTI is higher, only up to $72.02 a barrel for the month of January. I think we're back in contango at this point, though, where the the later months that you're looking at are quite a bit higher. And that's showing up here in the ice Brent numbers that we're looking at, too. February, $77. Obviously, Brent a little higher anyway. But if you're looking out further months, I think the expectations are that global demand might pick up. And that's what you're seeing playing out right here, Andrew. I just like that you said we're back in contango. That's, you know, just to bring it. Copa. Oh, not tango, but contango. Yes. Just means the Contango. later months Contango. are higher. The later months yes. out are a little higher, um, and that's, I guess, a good thing too if you're looking at prospects for the future. Costco shares—they're on the move this morning after the wholesale club retailer reported better than expected profits in its fiscal first quarter. Same-store sales were up by nearly four percent. The membership fee revenue—that was a big deal. That was up more than eight percent. The company also issued a special dividend of $15 a share, which is payable in January. And this has been a pretty phenomenal story. Costco shares up by 38% over the last year, um, up by $9.20 on the last tick. And I will tell you, it's, you know, Costco's a fun story. It was Charlie Munger's probably favorite, definitely favorite retailer. 
uh, one of his favorite companies of all time. He was on the board there for a long time, and it's just a, a different and unique story because of the membership fees that they charge, the revenue. Club. Yeah, the membership club that they get. So it's a different kind of retailer. Obviously, Sam's Club has kind of followed along with some of those things. But it, it, it has been different right. and insulated than other companies. The biggest uh, version of that now, Amazon Prime. Yeah. Oddly enough, people don't think about that as a, 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 like a copycat thing. But I think in some ways, maybe, maybe it ultimately was. Let's tell everybody about this story. Uh, also in the sort of phenomenal camp, but in a very different way, uh, or at least maybe a fascinating camp, City, uh, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier making a very big move that I think is going to raise a lot of eyebrows on Wall Street. Uh, the financial giant is shutting down its municipal business. This according to an internal memo, City deciding the unit is no longer viable given its commitment to the increase uh, to increase the firm's overall returns. The memo says that the bank will unwind the unit in the first quarter. Most of the employees, about 100, will likely leave the bank. This news is notable because City dominated the municipal market for decades and uh, a big shift. And you're already starting to see how the shifts are playing out on Wall Street. But City is fundamentally a very different bank than what it was five years ago, what it was 10 years ago, what it was before the financial crisis, obviously what it was through all the various mergers that created it. But uh, you're yeah. seeing, I don't want to say the dismantling of City, but the, the sort of yeah. shape shifting it, it, or, or yeah. Dismantling is not too far off. Jane Frazier has been very outspoken and very, uh, very prone to action just in terms of shutting down things that she doesn't think are profitable and, and really changing and turning. Now, talk to investors. There are a lot of people think that it needs some pretty severe shakeups. Um, I think it still remains to be seen how successful they're going to be at the end of all of this. But she's doing a lot of things that investors had said were probably pretty necessary. I just wonder what this does to the municipal market. Um, yeah. You know, it just it obviously takes a competitor out of the game. Yeah, I, I, I was I'm, shocked I, it was only 100 people, too. Yeah. Which also means that maybe they were never participating or bidding or winning. Uh, and if they were, they were doing it at a loss. I don't know. Yeah. So we'll see. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and Guyana President Arfan Ali met in the Caribbean yesterday to talk about Venezuela's claim over an oil-rich region in Guyana, both sides agreeing not to use force or escalate tensions, but they did not resolve the dispute. Joining us right now with more on the dispute's implications for geopolitics and the energy markets is our very own longtime chief international correspondent, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, now, of course, a CNBC contributor. And Michelle, this is a weird one. Okay, so they met yesterday and agreed not to use force. That's because Guyana doesn't have any force to really use. This is a disputed area of land that goes back like 100 years. But for 100 years, it's been Guyana's. So what's the dispute? Uh, oh, the dispute is... I want it? Uh, yeah, Venezuela, Venezuela has laid claim to this for more than 100 years. The reason Venezuela is very interested in it right now is because there's 11 billion uh, barrels worth of proven reserves there, and now you've got... Uh, Exxon Mobil in there, you have Hess in there, and you also have the Chinese uh, state oil company, Sinook, drilling like crazy there. So vi Venezuela, even though they have 300 billion barrels of proven reserves in Venezuela that they can't manage to drill on their own, they would like to lay claim to this area as well. So this is why there's been a rising uh, tension and escalation, one of the reasons why. I, I wouldn't believe anything Nicolas Maduro said yesterday. Yeah. Even though he promised that there wouldn't be a, a, a you know, he wouldn't uh, use force or escalate the situation. He's proven to be a very uh, untrustworthy negotiating partner, particularly with the United States. Back in October, the U.S. came to a deal with Venezuela saying, OK, if you promise to have uh, free and fair elections, 
we will, in advance of that, we will ease sanctions, and that's what allowed Chevron to get a license, at least for six months, to go back in there and start resuming work. Within two weeks of that agreement, he outlawed the opposition candidate and said that the person couldn't run for office. So he's already backtracked on that deal um, to the point where, you know, the Financial Times has written an editorial saying that the U.S. should reimpose the sanctions right away uh, because he's so untrustworthy. It, 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 it's an intractable situation. Um, the sanctions haven't worked very well. This is a country that is in dire straits. Mm -hmm. um, on the verge of a failed nation for, for its people. Right, right. So, uh, you know, the Biden administration was incentivized to get something done for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about, right? If you get more money in there, uh, et cetera. Also, because to have more oil on, on the world market would be better to help lower prices. And the other reason they were interested in coming to a deal is because um, that also, they, Venezuela also began allowing the repatriation of Venezuelan migrants. So in the middle of this migrant crisis that's happening in the border, affecting cities like this one in the United States, where we've had thousands and thousands of Venezuelans coming to places like New York City, uh, the U.S. was able to send some back. And that's actually disincentivized Venezuelans from coming to the border because they don't want to be sent back. So Maduro's got a lot of leverage here. And this all plays into that. He can up the ante. He can, okay, he's not going to follow through on the promises about democracy. But now he's got this, oh, I won't invade if you promise not to raise the sanctions, is what the analysis out of Washington is why he's doing this. Even Darren Woods, though, the CEO of ExxonMobil, has said that this is something you've got to pay attention to. It may, may be more than just bluster. Oh, I, I would say it's definitely not a zero possibility that they invade. It's definitely a possibility. I wouldn't call it a high one for a couple of reasons. It, again. This is likely a negotiating tactic to prevent uh, the reimposition of sanctions. Uh, but there's also a physical geography that makes it difficult. The, the, re, the, the border between Guyana and Venezuela is extremely jungly, very dense, possible to move tanks through. Um, people who uh, are familiar with the area believe they'd have to go through Brazil. Uh, you know, they'd have to go around, and, and uh, Brazil does not want that. The president of Brazil, Lula, does not want that. They've dispatched the military to that area to try and prevent that and to show deterrence there. Um, and, and the other reason why it's less likely to happen is Maduro doesn't have a single ally in the region that wants it to happen. His would-be allies, the, the more leftist leaders of Latin America, the leader of Mexico, the leader of Brazil, the leader of Colombia, all are uh, theoretically aligned with him. Even Cuba does not want him to do this. Why? Um, for, for a number of reasons, right? First of all, um, despite aligning with him, perhaps politically, they do believe in, in the sovereignty uh, of countries, right, and the sanctity of borders, even though Brazil has been a little, uh, has equivocated a little bit on the situation in Ukraine, but we'll put that aside. Um, Guyana has historically been aligned with Cuba for a very long time and has often voted with them at the UN on, on various issues. So, uh, you know, this is not something that he will necessarily have support from the, the rest of Latin America. Where he you're might taking normally... one of us on. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, Michelle, thank you very much. Every time I get to talk to you, I learn something. Oh, that's very kind. Thank so. you. It's always an honor to be on. Love having you here. Michelle Cabrera. See you later. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen on a number of topics, funding aid for our allies in crisis, congressional stock trading, and prioritizing border security. Remember, the last time we've done real reforms to immigration was in 1985. That was literally Mitch McConnell's first year in office and Reagan was still president. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The European Union failed to agree on a $54 billion funding package for Ukraine, even as the EU agreed to talk about having the war-torn country potentially join the bloc. Hungary's prime minister prevented final approval of the funding, saying he will come back to the issue next year. This capped off a difficult week for Ukraine's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, who traveled to Washington in person and, it seemed, was unable to convince U.S. lawmakers to approve an additional $61 billion in aid for his country, mostly to purchase weapons. But late Thursday evening, Senate Democrats announced a postponement of the start of the Senate's holiday recess to continue to wrangle over a supplemental funding deal to help Ukraine and pair that package with a crackdown on migration at the U.S. border with Mexico put it all in one bill. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called on senators of both parties and the White House to work through the weekend to strike a border deal. If we believe something is important and urgent, we should stay and get the job done. That is certainly the case with the supplemental. It is important. It is urgent. We heard from one senator today, Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma, about the work ahead this weekend and beyond. And it should be said, Mullen is no stranger to moments that capture broader attention, particularly on social media. Last month at a congressional hearing, he engaged in a war of words with a witness, Teamsters President Sean O'Brien. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Oh, you're a clown. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down. Mullen is a former mixed martial arts fighter as well. He spoke to Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin today. Andrew kicks things off. Senator, good morning to you. Morning, Andrew. Uh, what is this? What's the state of play here? What's What do you think the chances are that anything gets done before Christmas? I think it's very slim. I mean, even the White House chose just this week to really and start engaging uh, with the Republicans. We said all along that we got to have meaningful border security if we're going to do Ukraine uh, funding and, and the Israel package. Now, that was that hasn't changed. Republicans in the House and the Senate are very, uh, very confident in our stance of where we want to be because we want to stem the flow of illegal crossings. Right now, Andrew, there is uh, there is over 21,000 individuals every other day claiming asylum on our southern border. During the Obama administration, when they said they had a crisis from 2010 to 2014, we only averaged 21,000 a year. So there's a huge problem. Everybody knows that. But the Biden administration refused to engage with us until just recently. So let's just say we got a deal struck today, Andrew, which I, I really don't think we can, but just say we do. It'll take two or three days before we could even get it uh, written up for us to start reading it. That's that's another two or three days for us to go through it, look at the changes that need to be made, uh, and then start the proceedings just in the, just in the Senate. Now, that doesn't even mean that the House is going to be able to come back. So the chances of us having this done before Christmas is just almost impossible. Help educate the audience, if you could, because I think we all hear about the border as an issue sort of writ large. But right now we're down to the details of what we're talking about at the border. Uh, it appears that the Biden administration may be coming to the table to try to, to move on their side a little bit. I don't know where you think the fault line is exactly. Uh, so much of this revolves around asylum seekers. What do you right. see the, the actual sticking point being? 
Well, really meaningful secure securing our border. They want to put a cap number on it. So they say they want to reduce the flow by uh, by 100 or 200, and that's literally just putting a pencil mark on a piece of paper. That doesn't that doesn't change anything. When we're having when we're having over 10,000 a day seeking asylum. Um, that's a huge issue, right? So what they first proposed was 13, over $13 billion to literally put in processing centers in Mexico to process individuals faster when they, when they came to, uh, uh, to the United States. What we're saying is let's go to the pack that we have with Canada and with Mexico and say that the pack we have between the two countries simply state that you have to claim asylum in the first country you enter. So if you enter Mexico first, you got to claim asylum there before you get to the United States. And if you get into the United States, you got to claim asylum there before you go into Canada or Mexico. Um, that would stem the flow just by changing that one process, Andrew. That would stem the flow by over 70% because over 70% of the individuals crossing our southern border are from other countries than Mexico. So that's a very simple change that could be made that we already have an agreement with both countries that they both already practice. So it, this is, I mean, we, we're not really talking, we're not talking about building the wall. We're not even talking about remaining in Mexico. We're talking about using a change that's already on the books and they won't even begin to negotiate on that. Instead, they want to have unrealistic uh, numbers so they can say they've done something when really when you're talking about one or 200 when, uh, a day that they, want to, that they want to reduce by when you're having over 10,000, it, it doesn't even make any sense. Hey, Senator Mullen, I can, I can understand why we'd be in favor of that, why Canada would be in favor of that. What does Mexico say if we bring that up to them? Because they, they're going to wind up with a lot more of the refugees as a result. Sure. We've had conversations with them before. Um, and and basically, I'll tell you what they're basically saying. If you all do this, then we're going to need help securing our southern border. You know what? If that's what they need, fine. We will help them secure their southern border because it'll be a lot more cost effective for us to do that than it will be for us to try to stop it on our side. Uh, they understand there's a problem. But since people are just crossing their country to get into the United States, they really aren't interested in trying to stop the flow. But if we engage, if we engage in this, then they've said they're going to need help on the other side. And the Republicans are saying, if that's what you need, okay, let's talk. Senator, let's say a deal doesn't, doesn't happen. What do you think the, the true implication is for Ukraine? What do you think the true implication for Israel is? And what do you think the true implication is for our standing as an ally in the world? Well, I, I, first of all, I believe we have an obligation to Ukraine. Uh, according to the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, when we said, if you'll give up your nuclear weapons, the United States will be there specifically if you get, if you get in, invaded by, uh, by Russia. And I don't think any of us here think that Russia and Putin would, in, would have invaded Ukraine if they still had nuclear weapons. So we have an obligation to them, and I feel like we'll fulfill that. Uh, and we also know that we're going to do this, but we're not going to do it until we have border security. The Biden administration can't argue why we shouldn't do this. This is a 70 percent issue across the United States. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, independent or libertarian. 70 percent of the population today says that the border is a national security risk and we have to do something there. So we're actually doing the Biden administration favor by saying that we want meaningful border security. Uh, so I really do believe eventually we're going to get a deal struck. What we had, what we, we made a mistake in, in the Senate, thinking that Chuck Schumer was the one that we need to negotiate with. All along, Chuck Schumer isn't the person you need to negotiate with. He's not, he, he, he's not even running the Senate in an effective manner whatsoever. But the Biden administration, by the fact that they're engaging now, 
we feel like we've got a, a very good chance to get this accomplished, but not before Christmas. Okay, if it's not before Christmas, that gets us to the beginning part of next year, and there's a lot that needs to get done because we kind of kick the can down sure. the road once again with the with the budget, trying to make sure that we're going to get all these appropriations bills done in January too. I, I know that you are uh, concerned about our troops over in the Middle East. I know that you're concerned about what happens in Ukraine if 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 Putin were to get his way and, and be able to move in. I, how concerned are you on the timelines on these issues? If the ability to get something done and make sure that the funding doesn't run out and that there's not some, some gap in appropriation sent overseas too. Well, one thing that Congress works unfortunately really good on is deadlines. In fact, yeah. they use deadlines to get something done. Uh, this isn't really a hard deadline. There's a lot of levers that can be pulled to keep funding moving into Ukraine. There's a lot of funding inside DOD. There's uh, a lot of funding still through the, through the White House, through the executive branch. Um, so we're not, we're not to that point. And really, when we're talking about funding to Ukraine, we're talking about uh, munitions and drawdowns of our own with replacement. Which So most of the money that's in the Ukraine package isn't specifically going to Ukraine. It's going to replenish munitions that we have given to Ukraine and put it back in our stockpile. And we have a, a point that we don't want to get below, but we can adjust that point if we need to, uh, say for another three weeks to have another bigger drawdown. So we're not on a hard dead point uh, like we are with a CR um, or other funding issues. So we have some flexibility, but we still think this is, Becky, is very important but we're not going to rush so hard just because Chuck Schumer now wants to make this serious negotiation deal and hold us here before Christmas, nor are we going to uh, rush just because the Biden administration is, uh, is, is wanting to engage now. Remember, the last time we've done real reforms to immigration was in eight or 1985. That was literally Mitch McConnell's first year in office and Reagan was still president. So there's a reason why it hasn't been done. If it's been that difficult, let's not rush. Let's make sure we get it right because it may be another 30 or 40 years before we have an opportunity to do it. Uh, Senator Mullen, can I ask you about something that's come sure, up? It's just a, a spat between you and Representative Matt Gates over the last day or so. Uh, he was talking about your increase in wealth as a reason to ban members of Congress for trading stocks. And you came back with some pretty tough criticism for him. Well, I, he, for him to come after me saying that I've gained wealth because of, uh, because of I, the ability to trade stocks, I laugh. I mean, because he wasn't there when I was 19 years old and 20 years old, married to my beautiful wife of 26 years, building our business, working 24 hours a day. Uh, what I simply said, if, if you're going to criticize me, maybe, maybe you should consider building a company that gains value because that's how you get real wealth. Don't assume that everybody's trading, trading stocks, but he's... You know, he gets his money from his dad, not from actually working uh, and building a business. So there's a, just a difference between uh, reality there with Matt Gates and really the rest of the people. You know, it, it is it is interesting. It's a it's a topic we've talked about. Just the, the idea of the ability to trade stocks. Uh, yeah. Where do you come down I mean, on that? It, it matters yeah, to well, our Becky, viewers. Yeah, and Becky, if you look at what Paul Pelosi has done, yeah, mm -hmm. there's an issue there. Uh, Pelosi's been in office forever, and she we came in office, she didn't have much money, and now she's worth millions and millions of dollars. But to say that I have done the same thing is absolutely laughable, uh, because there, there is, it, we've had our business for 26 years, and we built it from almost bankruptcy all the way up to where we employ hundreds of employees today. There's hmm. a huge difference between that and what Paul Pelosi did, so you can't put every member of Congress in one, in one bucket. If they want to attach 
uh, closely to that picture that Matt Gates put out, sure, there's yeah. probably a lot of reforms, not probably, there's probably a lot of reforms that need to take place, but th th it's absolutely petty what he did with us. Would you, would you vote in favor of effectively eliminating or, or outlawing uh, elected officials or, or, or members of the Senate and Congress from trading completely? I mean, is, it, is there an answer well, you think that's important in terms of the integrity of, know, of that office? Yeah, I don't know if you can actually do that because everybody has investment portfolios. So how are you going to do that when you're investing in, let's say, a 401k? Because a lot of people that have retirement programs that are set aside to that. But I think if you have open trading, yes, there's an issue with that. Of course, right now you have ethics. So anytime that my uh, my uh, financial advisor is trading, I have to report it. So we actually do just a standard two-week report with ethics every week every or every two weeks. We just have automatically do it so we're not having to have any compliance issues. But I think inside of trading, when it has anything to do with what you're touching, what you're specifically dealing with, members of Congress shouldn't even touch that. But you got to be careful because how do you keep someone from trading if it's put in a retirement package, uh, which every American out there that has a 401k or has money set aside with any type of uh, a pension has to do that. Why'd, you, why'd Gates come after you? Did you say anything about ethics with him? Because that seems to be no, what he goes uh, Matt, after a lot of people for. I'm not a big fan of Matt Gates. I mean, really, when it comes to it, I, I just think he's got, a, he's got huge ethical issues. Um, and he put, portrays himself as somebody that he's not. And, uh, and I just have a tendency to point out, you know, the Bible says don't point out the, 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 uh, the speck in your neighbor's eye when you got a plank in yours, and he's got a big plank in his. Okay, Senator, we, we have to go. Actually, let me ask you one other thing. It's been a month. Sure. And by the way, I told my kids that I was going to be talking to you today, and they, of course, watched you on Twitter or X, what they call <laughs> the almost fight. And they right. said, Dad, you gotta, you got to ask him about that. And does he have a different perspective on it a month later? You know, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of bullies. Uh, I, I grew up with a real bad speech impediment, and my legs all messed up, so I couldn't argue with you, and I couldn't run from you. And uh, when you're that way as a kid, you have a tendency to get picked on, so unfortunately, I had to learn how to fight. Uh, and so I have a real disdain for bullies, and I, I consider Sean O'Brien a bully. Uh, I didn't start this. You know, he was the one that came after me multiple times on social media, and, uh, and I simply called him out on it. And most of the time, when you stand up to bullies, they back down. Uh, and in this case was, is exactly what happened. Sometimes they need to be put in their place. And I understand not everybody can do that. Not all, everybody has a gift uh, or the talents to be able to necessarily stand up for themselves or the skills to do so. But at, if you don't stand up to bullies at some point, they'll continue to get more and more aggressive until they actually hurt somebody really bad. And what I want to do is just simply put him in his place. Senator Mullen, like uh, we, appreciate, <laughs> we, we appreciate your time this morning very, very much. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, guys. You bet. I like that guy. Here's what we're cooking up next on Squawk Pod. Oh, I had a good time. Celebrity chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, Lydia Bastianich. The first ones was Italian-American food. It was Italian food uh, that was food of the Italian immigrants. Wonderful food, it's still out there, it's very popular. Actually, I think it's growing back in popularity. Everyone to the table and eat right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is out today. Uh, we got a lot going on, though. Our next guest runs a food and media empire, can give us her unique thoughts on consumer spending, food trends this holiday season, and so much joining, uh, so much more joining us right now is Lydia Bastianich. She's a restaurateur, of course, the Emmy Award-winning TV host and best-selling author. 
Her latest PBS special, 25 Years with Lydia, Culinary Jubilee. It premieres Monday, December 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And let's just wish you a, a happy, happy anniversary. 25 years is a remarkable thing, Lydia. Oh, I had a good time. Every year was a great year. I just loved being there, you know. Uh, you I know, love to communicate you know. with people. So, okay, I want to talk about the, the restaurant business and, and business business, but I was actually thinking to myself, what business do you think you're in? Because I think of you as, as somebody in the, in, <laughs> it's a, a restaurateur, an entrepreneur, somebody who's in the kitchen, but all, then you're, you're making stuff, you're hosting stuff. When you think about like the business that is Lydia, what is it? It's, it's a wonderful business to be. She had a great life, Lydia. She still has. She loves every minute of it. 50 years in the restaurant business. So I began. It's sort of a crescendo of connecting with the American public, connecting with them first with the restaurant. And of course, they came into my restaurants. We saw each other there. Then I got the opportunity to go on PBS. Julia Child gave me that sort of opportunity. She took me on with her. And uh, of course, the books. So it's a process of feeding people, cooking for them in every single step. But in the other steps that come, I teach as well. Not only do I have my restaurants, I have products. You know, they can buy my sauce, Lydia sauce, so they can take it at home. They can cook from my books. They can watch me. So it's it's kind of a, a teaching, a relating to the to Amer you know. I'm an immigrant. I came here. I was 12 years old, and I appreciate so much the opportunity that my family and I had here in America. What is the biggest change you've seen over that period about the way the American consumer interacts with you, uh, whether it be in, in, in the restaurant, meaning how people order, what they order, how they spend? I mean, have you, I assume you've seen a big shift over this period of time just in how, how people relate to food and how they consume food. Uh, absolutely. There's a, a consciousness, a growth of consciousness to food and knowledge about food, whether it be cultural. I am uh, uh, ethnic Italian, and Italian, I think, is one of the number one ethnic foods in America. So I was kind of privileged in that aspect. And the people out there loved Italian, loved Italian food. So my first restaurants, and you know what? People really out there perceived kind of a home setting. Uh, the genuine cooking, I always cooked the traditional Italian food. And so they followed me through, but they become ever more uh, informed and intelligent. The regional, when I opened Felidia, I opened my first one in 71 in Queens. Then I opened Felidia in 81. And uh, when I opened Felidia, I said, well, the first ones was Italian-American food. It was Italian food uh, that was food of the Italian immigrants. Wonderful food. It's still out there. It's very popular. Actually, I think it's growing back in popularity. But when I went to Felidia, I, I decided to do the regional food of Italy, 20 regions. I want to ask you two other questions. I want to talk about inflation, cost of food, big issue. And then I'm, you know, I was on TikTok last night just looking around, and I was looking you up. There's people in your restaurants, they, they're, you know, everybody's Instagramming their food. Then, then I realized they're actually Instagramming their food at home from your cookbook uh -huh. and how that's changed the business. I, I just love it, first of all, because I am part of their life. But the business has changed, especially now. People are very conscious. They're very conscious. Right after the pandemic, they were 
gang-ho, let's go out, let's spend, let's, let's relive life. But now they're watching the economic situation. They're watching, they're going out, maybe more in numbers, but spending less. That big bottle of wine is no longer, you know, on the table. Uh, I think, you know, a, a, a quote I noticed, hand food is in. What does that mean? You know, like sandwiches, like hamburgers, rather than steak, knife and fork food. That's so trading, they're trading down cheaper stuff. They, they are, they are. Uh, but they're not forfeiting quality and, uh, and nourishment. Very informed today's public. So, you know, if you're a, a restaurateur or in the food business, you need to be very conscious that the public is almost ahead of you. They know what they want. But the, follow -up, but the first item to go is the wine, you're saying? Because that I was think, always the highest margin. Wasn't that always the highest margin piece of the uh, bill? It is, you know, the wine, the drinks. But even the drinks are, are going down. You know, instead of the, the martinis, the Manhattans, the spritzers are in. You know, spritz is slider, maybe. You can have one extra. And it costs less. Uh, uh, but yes, uh, absolutely. You know, the big... Pr because uh, value in food in America is perceived by the pro proteins. The large, the size of the protein, the larger the steak, the larger the chop, the better value you get. And you know, in comparing to the Italian, the Italian, the protein is about one third of the dish. In America, the protein has to be at least two thirds of the dish for the Americans to consider, oh, I got a good value. But that, yeah, but that has to change because also nutritionally, uh, it makes all sense. And what as restaurateurs, as chefs, have to really focus is on the contorno, on the vegetables, on the, on the legumes, make them tasty, make them wonderful. They cost less, the profit margin is larger if you diminish the proteins and increase. And the customer is just as happy, maybe even happier because they're conscious about their nutrition today. All right. Lydia, I uh, want to thank you. I uh, want to uh, wish you a happy 25th again and uh, happy holidays. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays, everybody. Ciao, Becky. And that is Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and reach out to us. You can rate or review Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts or send us your thoughts on X, once known as Twitter. Our handle is at Squawk CNBC. Thanks for listening. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you.